This is Habwank. I'm Joe Salvaggi. Welcome to Hubwonk, a podcast of Pioneer Institute, a think tank in Boston. The concern that income inequality is wide and getting wider is at the foundation of both the policy and rhetoric of the political left. Senator and former presidential candidate Bernie Sanders distilled out the spirit of his views when he stated that, quote, the obscene and increasing level of wealth and income inequality in this country is immoral, un-American, and unsustainable, unquote. Indeed, census data estimates that the income at the top fifth of Americans exceeds that of the bottom fifth by 16.7 times. And the percentage of those living in poverty has not changed since the Great Society programs of the 1960s. But a closer look at the income data, one that accounts for money that comes from government in the form of transfer payments and goes to government in the form of taxes, tells a very different story. A recent indication that measurements of inequality may be deeply flawed was evident when, during the COVID pandemic, a 50% increase in direct government payments to citizens over two years revealed neither a measurable increase in income in the families in the lowest fifth, nor any decrease in poverty. Another warning sign our current income measurements are flawed is that families in the bottom fifth spend twice their estimated census earnings, while those in the top fifth spend half the income the census claims they earn. If in fact, income inequality measurements are so disconnected to the actual income Americans have to spend, how can voters take seriously either the fiery rhetoric of opportunistic politicians or the well-intentioned recommendations of concerned policymakers? My guest today is John Early, a mathematical economist and adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute, who has twice served as assistant commissioner at the Bureau of Labor Statistics. Mr. Early is co-author, along with Senator Phil Graham and Robert Eklund, of the newly released book, The Myth of American Inequality, in which he examines the substantial errors in the way income is measured. He will share with us how the way in which we measure inequality distorts its magnitude and historical direction, and leaves policymakers with little or no feedback signals with which to measure the success of their interventions. We will also discuss the dangers of inaccurate income inequality measurements on the voting public when redistributive policies animated by desire to mitigate rising income inequality, are seen to discount the value of those who work and pay taxes and overlook the benefits given to those who do not. When I return, I'll be joined by economist and author, Mr. John Early. Okay, we're back. This is Hubwonk. I'm Joe Salvaggi, and I'm now pleased to be joined by a mathematical economist and author of the new book, The Myth of American Income Equality, John Early. Welcome to Hubwonk, John. Glad to be here, Joe. Look forward, look forward to this discussion. Wonderful. Well, congratulations on the release of your new book. Uh, it's a very exciting book, a very provocative book. Uh, I enjoyed reading it. Um, now, it challenges some foundational principles uh, for policymakers, uh, namely that um, uh, the there's a huge divide between the income enjoyed by the top and bottom earners, uh, and that gap is getting wider. Uh, but before we get into the nitty gritty of the findings of your book, uh, explain to our uh, audience, uh, I don't think you're the first official uh, mathematical economist we've had. What do mathematical economists do? Well, first of all, it's what do economists do? <laughs> economists study exchange. Um, thousands of years ago, I may exchange the yak that I shot for the yams that you grew because I'm a better shot and you've got a greener thumb. So there, there are always are exchanges going on today. We usually exchange our labor for money. 
and take the money and exchange it for groceries and housing and energy and so on. So economists study exchange and how it works and how it doesn't work. A mathematical economist, at least that's how I got the title many years ago, is one who principally focuses on the measurement of that. Measurement how many exchanges you have, how often they are, how big they are, so how much money there is, and, and how effective markets are in clearing those exchanges. Wonderful. Well, um, I enjoy numbers, uh, but this is an audible format, although some may watch us on, on uh, YouTube. Um, but I do like to uh, talk about numbers, but we in our audible format, we're not going to have the luxury of having graphs for our listeners. So we're going to have to paint those graphs with our conversation and our words. So let's start off by defi defining some terms, uh, uh, chief among those. Uh, what is income? And let's then we'll move on to inequality. So how do we measure income in America uh, 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 that support your book? Well, let's let's start with the broader thing. What, what what is it that we should be measuring, and then we'll talk about what actually is measured as we go along. Uh, income is resources that a household receives, because we're talking about household income here. We're not talking about income to companies and so on, but it's the resources that a household receives, and those resources come from three places: earnings from work, earnings from savings and what are called transfer payments from uh, government. It's money that the government gives to some households. So this uh, income level, uh, if it's a high number, we are considered wealthy perhaps, and if it's a low number, it's uh, poverty. Uh, do we use those same uh, sort of measurements? Is essentially the absence of income what we would regard as poverty? Now, poverty is defined, uh, at least explicitly in terms of the government statistics, as someone who's in a family whose income uh, is below some particular level uh, called a, uh, a poverty threshold. And the measure of income that is used there is the same measure of income that is used in inequality measurement and other measurement of household income. Okay, all right. Um, now again, we're talking about basic terms, inequality. Uh, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna just say, uh, I'm gonna take a stab and say inequality is the sort of relative uh, difference between low income earners and high income earners. I, I guess also, uh, with regard to uh, the median income, right? We're going to look at the top, bottom, and average income. Is is that the, where we're looking at when we talk about inequality? Yeah, there are there are a large number of different comparisons one could make, but that's a that's a fair summary. Compare the top. Uh, you quite frequently we compare the top twenty percent, which are called quintiles, the top twenty percent with the bottom twenty percent. What does that look like? And then we may also compare it with the middle twenty percent. Uh, and, and uh, make those comparisons. There are some other kinds of measures we may get into, but though, that's a very basic measure we can all relate to and understand easily. I want to come back to the term uh, later, but um, I think some of our audience may have heard of this concept of uh, Gini coefficient, when, particularly when comparing, let's say, OECD nations or the modern nations, uh, when we talk about, um, I think it's an index between zero and one, where zero is everybody's got exactly the same one, one guy has all the money and, and everybody falls somewhere in that continuum. Do I have that about right? That that's a good one sentence description. Yeah, and, if, and I can go into more weeds than you'd care to if you want to. <laughs> no, I, you know, again, I want to do the prep work before we get into the meat of the book. Yeah. Um, and again, well, just to put a, a fine bow on this, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, introduce some normative statements, which is to say uh, we generally accept uh, that uh, poverty is bad, and that perhaps uh, it, you know those who are impoverished 
or do some sort of level of uh, government largesse. Again, I, who, how much is perhaps a huge uh, issue for debate? And more equal in general is better than less equal, although I'm sure there are some people who take a, a issue with those terms. But but uh, you know, for the purpose of our conversation, we'd like uh, poverty be a low number, uh, equality be, let's say, uh, closer to uh, equal than non-equal. Is, is that fair to say? Well, well, poverty. Well, first of all, po poverty's level depends on what you define as those thresholds. Mm -hmm. So there could be some debates around those. But we've been working with a set of thresholds updated for price change, the same set for over fifty years. Uh, so there is there is a very well established official definition of what constitutes poverty. Um, so, and in general, it's widely accepted that those thresholds, if with some exceptions of some things that are not done well in them, but are on the order of magnitude that you want to look at. But the matter of inequality, there is no, you can have a normative debate about it, you know, how much inequality do we want, but there's nothing inherently either good or inherently either good or bad about it. Now, your moral judgment may say a certain level is too much or too little. But the focus of our book is saying, let's begin by getting the numbers right. How much inequality do we have? And so we spend 99% of our time talking about getting the numbers right. And then we can debate of what should it be once we know what it really is. Okay, well, I don't want to get ahead of ourselves with normative assertions that inequality is bad. Uh, I'm going to say it, it is what it is. Let's get the numbers right, as you say. So let's start there um, and talk about um, uh, how uh, we get these uh, data. Uh, we've got uh, census information on on income, and uh, we've got two fundamental components. Um, you know, how much uh, money are we counting as far as in terms of uh, income, uh, and then we're missing some additional income that's not accounted for, and we're not accounting for some withdrawals from that income, and namely in the form of taxes. So let's start at the beginning. Uh, paint for us a picture of what the census thinks is our relative income. You've mentioned quintiles, bottom quintile, top quintiles. What what are those numbers like? Okay, for census, their measure of income counts much of, but not all of earned income. And it counts a portion, only about a, a third of what are called transfer payments. And I, I mentioned those very briefly. So the earned income is what a person earns through their, most of it, 98% of it's from work, but there is additional income from, um, from savings. Uh, so that, 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 and then census counts some of the transfer payments, and, and the census measures the difference between the bottom quintile and the top quintile is about 16.7 to 1. In other words, households in the top fifth make 16.7, have 16.7 times more income from uh, earnings and from transfer payments. But in your book, you made clear that that number is wrong, and it's wrong for a couple of reasons, and it's wrong, incidentally, at all levels. So uh, describe for our listeners why the census gets it wrong. Let's say for the bottom quintile, but also the top quintile and, and the uh, and the uh, median quintile. How how does the census miss some of our income? Okay, so let let's take it piece by piece. The first is what we earn. Okay, uh, and they don't miss as much of that as they do of the other pieces, but they uh, they still miss uh, maybe 20 percent of it. For the higher earners, what they miss principally is realized capital gains. They just don't count it. But this is now not hypothetical capital gains. This is money you actually get from selling an asset, and it's of what you get over what you paid for it. Uh, so that for the higher income levels, that's not counted. For the lower income levels, 
or from the middle and lower, it's the big thing. The biggest thing that's missing is employer paid uh, benefits. Uh, of course, uh, health insurance being the most famous, but there are others as well. And so you need to add all of those in. And once you've done that, the difference between top to bottom is actually quite large. It's 60 to one. And the, uh, but that reflects what people do to earn money, either by working or by investing and saving their, their assets. So that's, that's the 60 to one, uh, so, which census doesn't publish, but it's there. So if it's pure income, the, the picture gets even more, um, uh, uh, let's say, uneven or unequal. In unequal. Um, so we, when we talk about earning, uh, the richer, even richer than we think, the poor don't get those uh, additional benefits, either employee uh, health care or um, uh, the money from uh, appreciated assets that are sold. Uh, now let's talk about how other ways uh, we as Americans get money, and particularly in the form of transfer payments. Define for our, right. our listeners what, where that is. Yeah. So transfer payments is what mostly you get from government. There, there could be small transfer payments. Uh, uh, in other ways, but it's mostly government. And census counts only one third of all of those transfer payments. So they, the biggest thing they count is um, social security. They count unemployment insurance, uh, uh, workers comp, uh, temporary assistance for needy families. But what they don't count is what's important for, for, the, for what our, we did here. They don't count, for example, refundable tax credits like the child tax credit or like the earned income tax credit, where the treasury sends the taxpayer a check for money that they never earned because their credit they get is bigger than the tax burden, the tax, um, what taxes they owe. So because that, if more, if most of us did that, uh, that would just be, you know, we, we weren't able to use the credit because we don't owe that much tax. But for these special cases of people with certain income levels and certain types of and certain numbers of children, they're able to get the difference sent to them in a treasury check. And census does not count that. So, so I pay a hundred dollars. I pay a hundred dollars in tax and I get two thousand dollars back in credit. Uh, that's not considered income. It's just I, I can spend it, but it's not income by uh, by the uh, uh, census standard. Yeah, and and that that's been a big dispute item recently. Now that's that's one obvious one. Another obvious one is um, food stamps. Mm -hmm. The government gives you a debit card at the beginning of the month. You can go buy a thousand dollars worth of food. It's a it's as good as having a thousand dollars in the bank, but census doesn't count that. Um, census doesn't uh, count. Uh, uh, a number of other things such as Medicaid. You know, you go to the doctor, you get a doctor bill, uh, and the doctor sends the bill to the U.S. Treasury who pays your bill, but that's as surely as if the Treasury had given you the money and you paid the bill. They don't count that money. So there's about uh, nine-tenths of a billion dollars, of a trillion dollars, I mean, 900 billion dollars in transfer payments that census counts. There's another $1.9 trillion that they don't count. Mm -hmm. And that's that's what that makes a big difference in the income distribution. So in the bottom line, how does that change the gap? We were, we were just at 60 to 1. Now uh, we've added all in back all these transfer payments. How does that change the gap between the top and the bottom? Well, it, it 
it takes away about uh, 90% of it. So I, again, I, I'm trying to keep up with the math. Uh, it takes away about 90%. So essentially we go from 60 to one down to something that looks, uh, you know, I don't know, quick math, um, six to one. I yeah, it'd be on that order, yeah. yeah. I, I, I guess I should have memorized that number, but I don't have it. <laughs> but it's, it's, it's on that order, yes. It's five point something, I think it's 5.7. Okay, so we've reduced, so it's not the 60 to 1 or even the 16.5 to 1, but it's in the sort of uh, 6, 7 range. So now yeah. there's, we're, we've we accounted for all the errors if, as far as income goes, okay? That's one substantial error in the way the census accounts for income uh, inequality. Let's go to the other edge of the, uh, the um, equation, which is to say money that you earn that you don't get to spend. And I, another name for that is called taxes. Um, if you earn a dollar and the government keeps 30 cents of it, you only have 70 cents of income. So explain to our listeners why uh, that's not added in and how it affects the various um, income quintiles. Yeah, the uh, census does not, you know, as you say, does not count the effect of taxes. But of course, if, you, if you're making $100,000 a year, but you only get $65,000 to spend, well, that other uh, $35,000 uh, is not income. You can't use it for anything. You can't buy food for the children. You can't uh, put oil in the, or gas in the car, uh, and you can't save for your college educations. Uh, so that, that money is, is useless to you, so it, it needs to come out. For the top quintile, that averages 35% of total income. That, now, this is all types of taxes, not just income taxes, 35% of income. And for the lowest quintile, that um, accounts for only 7%. Now, within that top quintile where it averages 35%, it gets up into the mid-40s as you go up within that income group. Indeed, that, that is a substantial adjustment when considering the differences, given that uh, we have a very progressive um, uh, tax system that, that taxes higher earners much more highly than low earners. What I also thought was interesting in the book, you do corroborate this sort of, well, I just, I don't want to bury the lead here. When we do account then for taxes and how that sort of reduces the higher income, uh, uh, income lower, uh, and, and let's say the lowest uh, quintile, not as much, what does the ratio look like when we account for taxes? Yeah, it, it, it's, it's 4.0. So we have, we started out with, uh, uh, you know, census saying it's 16.7. But now that we've accounted for everything, it's only four difference. So we've cut it by uh, by three quarters, the difference between the census number and what uh, uh, the real number is in terms of actual inequality between the top quintile and the bottom quintile. So our listeners are probably saying, you know, uh, you know, this is is this some uh, accounting magic? But I thought it was important that your book also corroborates this sort of observation that uh, lower income people make far more than the census thinks and upper income people earn far less. Uh, because of the adjustments you just described, but you also look at spending. A family, um, you, you you account for like the, the bottom uh, income spending family is uh, earns thirteen thousand, but spends twenty six thousand, which means they spend twice their income, which could really you know be explained no other way than roughly uh, what you're describing here right now. Yeah, and just so we can take the three witches stirring the cauldron out of this <laughs> out of this mix, uh, that that all comes from data that the United States government collects. So census uh, puts out the $13,000 per year that the 
lowest quintiles uh, has that they claim is earnings, I mean, is income, but the Bureau of Labor Statistics puts out $26,000 a year that they actually spend on stuff. Now, that other $13,000 had to come from somewhere. And incidentally, the, the, the Bureau of Labor Statistics spending number does not include, for example, Medicaid. Uh, because it doesn't, the physically doesn't come out of their pocket. So if they're spending twice as much as their uh, as census says they're receiving, they're getting money from somewhere to buy it. Uh, even the even the second quintile is spending 11% more than uh, what it has as income. And of course, at the top end of the, they're only spending about half of what census says they get as income. So the reality it does not jive well with the uh, census income data. It seems to to uh, align more with your characterization, which is instead of 16 and a half uh, times difference, it's uh, roughly four times difference. Right. Okay, all right, all right. Um, now, uh, I don't know how to integrate this into our conversation, but uh, part of the narrative uh, among sort of policymakers is that not only is this income gap wide, and we're sort of challenging the notion that is indeed wide, but it's wide and getting wider, meaning uh, the haves and the have-nots are, you know, the, the if seen as two lines on a graph, are, are diverging over time. Your book challenges that data and suggests that when accounting for these adjustments, over time, uh, the, the, the ratio between the, the wealthy and the, the least well-off doesn't seem to have changed very much at all in the last half century. Well, in fact, it, indeed, it hasn't changed in the last 70 years. Now, it, it in fact has changed ever so slightly. It's gone down 3%, as opposed to the census number saying it went up 23%. But it's for it's again, it's not magic. It's just adding and subtracting, you know, back, you know, 50 years ago and 70 years ago, transfer payments were not too big a deal. And any of the transfer payments that happened were in fact these cash transaction kinds of things. You would get a welfare payment, maybe even literally in cash, an envelope with a greenbacks in it. Uh, whereas today you get a, a debit card that you go to the grocery store with. So, and they count the one and not the other. So when we go back and reconstruct the historical data and add in all those missing transfer payments, and then we take away the taxes, which have gotten more progressive over time, uh, the, uh, the income remains essentially stable uh, after transfers and taxes. Now those, uh, let's say, um... Uh, let's say political demagogues not only assert that uh, the rich are getting richer and the poor are poorer, uh, but they're um, suggesting a total stagnation, meaning that we're not making more than our parents. In fact, we're often characterized as making less than our parents or should expect to make less than our parents. Your book also challenges that notion that says we're actually making far more than earlier generations. Share with our listeners, how, how is it and why is it that we are earning, in, by your account, more than past generations? Okay, um, let me give a, a brief overview up front. While we do that and we think we're absolute uh, and we've, we've showed independently with some new numbers, we're not the only people that have come to that conclusion. So we've got at least several other uh, credible studies that are that we cite in the book that has come to essentially the same conclusion using different sets of numbers. But here's how it happens. Uh, of course, one is you don't count all the, all the income. You know, you don't count all the transfer payments. So that we've talked we've talked that one. That one we all understand. But if you take something like average hourly earnings, it does not have that problem because it's how much money 
is paid to somebody who works for an employer. And so, and how much do they get on average per hour? So the, um, the missing transfer payments doesn't come in, into that equation. But here's, here's the problem. This, is a, this one gets a little complicated. So uh, stop me at any point you want to, <laughs> me to either I'll, stop. I'll hang on, I'll hang on for dear life. Here we go. <laughs> go okay. Ahead. There are two, what we call biases in the consumer price index that is used for most of these computations. Um, one bias is that over time, people change what they buy, what they choose to buy. And now the CPI keeps that constant over time and, and links them together in a way that keeps some kinds of bias from, from coming in. But as it's constructed, uh, if, if, the, if people's preferences change uh, into what they would, they would rather eat chicken than beef, or rather wear high heel shoes than loafers, uh, you know, any of the, any of those things do not enter the index directly. They're held constant so that all you get is pure price change. But let's go back to when airlines were deregulated. Uh, airline prices dropped radically uh, compared to the price for driving a car um, because it was deregulated. So people flew more and drove less. And they had a better bit. They, they preferred that because they could have the convenience of flying because they were able to pay with, uh, with a, a lower price compared to what it was. It's still cheaper to drive maybe, but compared to uh, the airline compared to driving had gotten cheaper. And the CPI did not reflect that improved uh, value that the consumer was getting by now being able to fly more and choosing to fly more. And you can go and show uh, data on all sorts of things where this, where this happens. And that's called a substitution bias. In other words, when, when for whatever reason, uh, consumers substitute one thing for another because it makes them better off. They don't do it because they're forced to. They choose to make that change. Uh, the consumer price index is, as calculated, unable to reflect that improvement in its calculation. Now, I used to run that program, so I, I know that for a fact. And we did a lot of experimental work. And here's the, here's the kicker to this one. Since the year 2000, there is a published consumer price index called the chained consumer price index that eliminates that problem. But census doesn't use it. Mm -hmm. and, and when you do that, you take away uh, about a half a percent or so per year of the measure of inflation. It's not. The, the bias isn't so big that it's going to tell you the difference between 3% last year and 8% this year. But when you accumulate a half a percent every year for 50 years, all of a sudden you have a whole lot of improvement in the well-being of the consumer that is not reflected in the consumer price index. So I now can buy a, a, a iPhone that is a substitute for my phone, my camera, my, uh, you know, a hundred other, other things that I normally needed to buy another device for. So. You know, I've, I, you know, that that may not be reflected in the standard uh, CPI, but in the chain CPI, it, it would be captured. Or, or and and the, that bias means that um, things cost less, or a half percent per year less than we think they do. Therefore, our dollars buy more, and therefore, in modern times, we're substantially, or again, I, I don't want to put words in your mouth, uh, we're better off than we were, let's say, a generation ago. Almost exactly right. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I mean, it's a good characterization of that substitution bias. 
uh, and your characterization of the cell phone has substitution bias issues in it. Absolutely, but people substituted the cell phone for their landline. I no longer have an app landline. My children never had a landline, my adult children. Uh, so uh, uh, it was a substitution. So that substitution itself doesn't, uh, uh, does, uh, doesn't get captured and the chain CPI does exactly that. And I'll tell you a little bit more about that in a second, but let me add one more footnote on this chain CPI. So census doesn't use it to measure income and the government doesn't use it to uh, escalate benefits that it pays. So, because many of the transfer payments are escalated annually by the CPI. It doesn't use that one. So they are escalated a half a percent more per year than they really should be. But where does the government use the change CPI? The one and only place? Right. Escalating the, the, the tax uh, brackets. <laughs> so the tax brackets rise more, you know, the tax brackets rise more slowly and therefore your rising income, you pay more taxes on it. That's right. But yeah. on the spending side, the, 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 escalate, the, the calculation causes the spending to rise more rapidly and therefore you're paying more taxes to pay more expenditure rather than keeping them in sync with each other. To the surprise of no one, the, uh, the accountants in the government uh, uh, prefer to tax more and spend more. That, that, uh, well, that may not no, make sense. Actually, it's not, a, it's not accountants. No accountant would ever do that. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. All right. So um, again, I, I don't want to go too deep on this, uh, but uh, is it now that if we're better off, is it that everybody's earning more? Is 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 the? I mean, again, it's often characterized that all the benefits of growth and all our prosperity, uh, you know, redound to the benefit of the top, the wealthy, the top uh, uh, income earners. Uh, characterized for our listeners, is the bottom bottom getting better? I mean, we we've said we've uncovered transfer payments that make them substantially better off than, than the census thinks they are, but are they better off over time? In other words, are the poor getting better off, uh, uh, you know, uh, along with the wealthy getting better off? Is, are, are, are all boats being lifted by this rising tide? Well, the answer is yes. And let's, let's, let's talk about that a little bit. Um, if you take a look at the income back in 1967, uh, there, there were five quintiles back then. Every, for every year, there are always five quintiles and every quintile always has 20% of the population. That never changes. Yes. So back in 1967, uh, the line that demarcated the top quintile, the 20% uh, highest earners in the, in, the, in the economy, that line between that and the other 80% was about $55,000. Okay, if you take that $55,000 today um, and, and you know, you look across, you'll find out that not only does everybody in the top quintile today earn more than $55,000, everybody in the fourth quintile earns more. Um, and everybody in the third quintile uh, earns more. and. Um, so about 13, 17% of the second quintile earns more. And so in the end, or I'm sorry, 13%. In the end, 77% of Americans today are making it or get, have income that is greater than what it would have taken to have been in the top quintile 
you know, across that line in 1967. A little complicated, yeah. but that's the point. 77% today make an income that would have put them in the top, 50, top 25% 50 years ago. So 77% of people today, when adjusted for inflation, would have been rich with the same with that income, uh, with that relative income in 1967. So we're doing pretty well. How about the bond? You know, again, we haven't talked much about poverty. Um, we did say it's a relative term, and we define what poverty is. How about the people at the bottom? Um, uh, how you know, again, accounting for our transfer payments? Uh, again, you make a provocative statement in your book. Uh, asserting that the uh, poverty level is very, very different than uh, publicly stated, that is virtually, uh, um, you know, I won't say non-existence, but somewhere in the one and two percent. Defend that idea that, uh, you know, literally it raises every single boat out there. Okay. At the end of World War II, 37 or so percent of the population was, by our definitions, current definitions, was poor. In the next 20 years, from 1947 to 1967, that dropped in half. We got rid of half of inflation in 20 years. And it was a pretty much a, you know, a, a, see there, if you're looking at you know, a straight line, a straight line go, going down. Um, and then in 1965, President Johnson announced his war on poverty. And he had two objectives. One is to make that decline in poverty to, to accelerate, but secondly, to move people off of that, as he called it, off of the dole onto being able to earn their own income. So the war on poverty commenced. And over the next couple of years, in fact, uh, the poverty rate continued to decline as it had before, but then it stopped, didn't decline anymore. And then it just oscillated between 11 and 15% for the next 50 years. But yet we were spending trillions of dollars, uh, and, and in the end, nearly $3 trillion, $2.8 trillion every year fighting poverty. Food stamps, temporary assistance for needy families, Medicaid, and so on, uh, rent subsidies, and so on. But yet the percent poor never changed by much, just up and down, up and down with the business cycle. But now we know one reason why. They weren't counting the new transfers, most of which were declared ineligible to be counted as income by census because they weren't in a cash envelope when they went to the beneficiary. And if you count all of that, uh, poverty drops to two and a half percent by 19, uh, by 2017. Well, I think that's an important point. And I want to bring it to current times, which is to say when uh, policymakers, particularly say the administration Biden trying to at um, attack uh, child poverty with literally trillions of dollars in benefits, uh, by the census's own accounting, you could mail everyone $2 trillion. And because that money is not counted in the census measure of either income or poverty, it will have zero effect on the data that, that policymakers make. There's literally no amount of money that you could mail that would literally change poverty or income data statistics. A am I off the rails here? That, that's it. And and the point is, it's a reinforcing negative, I mean, positive, what's called a positive feedback loop. We dump in a trillion dollars, measure poverty, and it didn't change. Dump in another trillion dollars, measure poverty, and it didn't change. Now, the numbers were not every year as big as they have been the last couple of years, but that same cycle was happening for 50 years, and we kept dumping in more money and not counting it. But yet, if we had counted it, poverty would have fallen 
you know, down in the one to two percent range. So that that was that was sort of a reinforcing. It just never never got fixed. Well, we're running out of time, and it's just getting juicy here. And I uh, I want to jump on this. I don't know if you follow our politics here in Massachusetts, but uh, though we're a very blue state, we do have a uh, a constitutionally um, mandated flat tax. We can have whatever tax rate we want, but uh, everybody's got to pay it. Uh, and we're introducing a, a an amendment in a ballot measure in November to introduce a four percent uh, surcharge on income above a million dollars. Uh, one of the pretexts for this kind of move is that uh, the wealthy don't pay their fair share, uh, and the poor are very very needy and and need that money. Um, this kind of observation, this kind of data, would challenge that notion that either the rich don't pay much in taxes or their quote unquote fair share, or that the uh, the bottom quintile here in Massachusetts is in, in dire need of additional uh, income and in the form of transfer payments. Uh, would you say that sort of this book doesn't directly affect or address our uh, questions here, but your book would challenge those, those uh, premises? Well, certainly the, under, the underlying assumption, uh, you know, because whatever the Massachusetts uh, official poverty rate is, uh, it's only about uh, between 5 and 10% of that number. Um, because the transfer payment, and in fact, it may even be smaller in Massachusetts because Massachusetts is very generous with its public assistance. Indeed. Among most of which is Right. Among the most generous, and given that we don't count that, uh, we will not, we will never, you know, given the path we're on, we will never solve poverty or income inequality because we're not counting it properly. Um, I have so many more questions I'd like to ask you, but we've run out of time, and I appreciate you uh, uh, spending um, uh, your, your time with me. If I can ask one more bonus question, I may edit this out, but uh, let, let me go there anyway. Um, one of the things I think bury, we're burying the lead here, which is there are, as you say, always and ever will be five quintiles. That's by you know axiomatic, I suppose, uh, by definition, uh, and that there is a huge disparity between um, the hours worked between the bottom quintile and the median quintile, middle quintile. Uh, but there's uh, not much difference in the income that those uh, quintiles enjoy. In other words, the guys in the middle are working hard and uh, putting in extra hours and making X, and the people at the bottom aren't working very, very much uh, and making Y. And the difference between X and Y is a very small number, which, again, we don't want to introduce um, normative uh, statements here, but it could have the effect of engendering a certain amount of resentment when one uh, works hard for of course, uh, not much more than those who, who work far less. Say something about your book's observation on this matter. Yeah, this is an important element of getting your facts straight on, on, these, on these matters. Um, if you take uh, the average household income in the bottom three quintiles, the, the, the bottom, the uh, second, and the, and the middle, the incomes are relatively close together. There's only a 30% difference between the bottom and the middle. Uh, but 98% or so of the prime age or adults in the middle income work. And on average, they work 37, 38 hours a week. Okay, in the bottom quintile, only about 36% of them work. And I'm talking here prime work age. This, this isn't retired people, this isn't students. It's people between the ages of 18 and 65. Only 36% of them are working. So twice as many work in the middle as work in the bottom. 
Uh, and the ones in the bottom that do work, work only about 17 hours a week. So uh, twice as many, uh, about three times as many work and twice as many, and they work twice as many hours. So that big difference should result in some significant difference in income. But the income is, it is difference is relatively small as, as I was saying. But if you take account of the family, household size, it gets even closer together because most of these data aren't size adjusted, but we go, there is a way to do that and we do it. And there you find out that the middle income makes less than 10% more than the bottom income. And in fact, the bottom income makes more than the second quintile in, 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 in measured income when you count all the pieces and adjust for size. And that, that has all kinds of both economic and social consequences that I don't think we fully appreciate. No, and again, we're constrained by time, but in a sense, if you're saying the bottom makes more than the second quintile, there's a negative incentive for work, or you know, perhaps yeah, there's- exactly. If you're trading um, uh, benefits for income, you've got a, a situation where you've got roughly a 100% marginal tax rate. I think, again, I don't want to read too much into your data, but I think it may help explain in some part why this great resign seems to be uh, creeping over our society in that the middle quintile said, okay, I didn't work uh, for two years or worked less, didn't make a cent less. Uh, this feels kind of good. Uh, they have a great work ethic, but no one's going to pay, uh, no one's going to go to work for nothing. If, you know, again, I don't want to. And, and see, what happened is that between 1967 and 2017, before COVID hit us, we had a, a halving of the work of the working of people in the bottom quintile, dropping from 68 to 37 percent. Uh, whereas, you know, the middle quintile continued to work hard, and, and the fear is, as you say, the great resign coming along is that this is going to bleed into the middle quintile as well. And this is, you know, I, I don't want to get read too much into the data. I'll also say that the top, uh, you know, what, what people might fantasize, millionaires and billionaires, the idle rich, I think you you say that the people in the top quintile work uh, 110% of, uh, uh, so there you didn't capture any idle rich. Uh, the people I know in that those categories seem to work till they're 80 and uh, and and retire the day before they die. So that that's my, you know, humble observation of of the top quintile. Yeah, uh, there, there was a study of the Forbes 400, and I may not have the number precise, but of the of the 400 there, I think it was something in the teens, like 13 or something of those of those highly rich families. Uh, so you know, less than one percent of them were actually did were not continuing to expand the wealth that they got originally. Mm -hmm. So. Wonderful. Well, okay, we'll leave it there. I, I've, I've taken more time than uh, I, I, I asked for. I, I appreciate your generosity. Uh, where can our listeners find your new book? I want to. I want to make sure I get the title right: "The Myth of American Inequality: How Government Biases Policy Debate." Where can our? Uh, oh, there it is on the screen. And uh, uh, find booksellers wherever they they go. Uh, yeah, they they sh they should be able to get it most places. You know. Um, uh, you know, Amazon has, has it, of course, um, but then so do their local local stores, or at least many of them do. Wonderful. And I, I also do fi uh, find your uh, writings. I found you both on uh, Cato and AEI. Uh, um, yeah, I think you're an adjunct scholar at, is it Cato or AEI? Yes. Yeah. Cato, Wonderful. yes. Wonderful. So uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, if, you go to, if you go to the Cato website, we've they've actually got a summary of it there that people might like to read too. A summary, and I think a link, a link to buying it, and I think they give them a little discount for the hardcover. Yeah, they so. do. 
Yeah, didn't want to do too much of a sales pitch. I know uh, that's all right. We 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 move product on this uh, podcast. I mean, we're not ashamed. No, no, you get a thirty percent discount if you order through the Cato website. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, well, I, I I hope that doesn't uh, cost you a cent. I, I don't want to cut into the uh, the profits here. So thank you for joining me today, John. You, this has been a heck of a, a conversation. I really enjoyed the book. Thank you for joining me today. Well, thank you. See you later. This has been another episode of Hubwonk. If you enjoyed today's show, there are several ways to support us. It would be easier for you and better for us if you subscribe to Hubwonk on your iTunes podcatcher. If you'd like to make it easier for others to find Hubwonk, it's great if you offer a five-star rating or a favorable review. We're always grateful if you want to share Hubwonk with friends. If you have ideas or suggestions or comments for me about topics for future episodes of Hubwonk, you're welcome to email me at hubwonk at pioneerinstitute.org. Please join me next week for a new episode of Hubwonk.